All right, church. Well, um, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to take them out and open them up to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be spending our time um, in Isaiah chapter 9, specifically in verses 6 through 7. Um, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. If you need a, a Bible, um, you can just put your hand up and looks like maybe Lisa, I don't know, or somebody could come around and drop one in it. I don't know. Zach, you want to grab some Bibles and maybe get one at least for Miss Shirley? All right. Let's go ahead and pray real quick before we, um, before we look at these, these verses here. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have this morning to open up your word. Lord, and we believe this to be your word. I pray right now that you would just uh, use me um, to just proclaim your truth. And I pray that as your word goes out, Lord, that you would use it to shape us and to form us as your people. Lord, we ask right now that you would take your word, which we believe to be eternal and true, and that you would write it on our very hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you guys, but um, Christmas time, typically there are traditions that many of us will use within our family um, to help bring meaning and significance and just really make memories during this time of, of year. And I don't know what traditions are for you and for your family, but one tradition that is um, maybe newer, at least in our house and even around here, is what is directly to my left, the Advent wreath. Okay, I believe this is the first year that we've had an Advent wreath at Parkview East. And quite honestly, it's sort of a newer concept. It's a new tradition for me. Um, traditions have to start somewhere, right? And so uh, as you've been coming, we haven't given it much attention over the last number of weeks, but you've, you've likely seen it up here. And each week we have lit a different candle. We've also used this um, Advent wreath at Faith Academy. And so um, there's a reason why there's one day we forgot to blow the candles out. All right. So it's not that we're having, if you came like this week and you saw that they're like a lot shorter than they were last week, it's not because you missed a whole lot. It's just that one day I forgot to put the candles out and there's just less candle now than there was before. Okay. Um, but it's really a helpful tool because it gives us, uh, it helps us understand really the, the significance of the Christmas story and helps us even, it's a good memory tool, right? So even this year at, at Faith Academy, we, we used it, we only had two weeks of school, so we would light two candles a week. And each candle represents a different character and it's sort of a different theme that is important in the Christmas story. Now there's, there's different uh, different ways of associating things with these candles. And if you were to just Google it, you might find different names and things like that. But how we've talked about it is that, that each candle represents a character in the story. The first candle is the character. It's called the prophet's character. Okay. The prophet's candle. Sorry. And it represents the prophets and their significance in the Christmas story, the prophets of, of old and how they prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. And, and their prophecy was, was given to God's people to, to create hope among God's people. And so as a result, the prophet's candle is associated oftentimes with the concept of hope and how the Christmas story should, for us as God's people, remind us of the hope that we have in God the hope that we have because of Christ specifically. The second candle is called the faith candle. Some may swap that out and call it the love candle, but we've called it the faith candle. And, and if you zoom in on the Christmas story, the character of the faith candle, candle that comes out is that of, of really the place, Bethlehem. 
called the Bethlehem candle. And as you look at the, the Bethlehem candle, if you go to Micah chapter five, verse two, you see that in the prophets, they prophesied that, that this Messiah who was gonna come to redeem and to rescue and to save God's people was gonna come from the town of Bethlehem. And what God said in his word, he did. We know that the Christmas story, Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem that was prophesied long before, some 500 years before Jesus was born. The third candle, hiding behind that big white one, the third candle is the shepherd's candle. And this is associated with the concept, the theme of joy. And as we know, joy is something we sing about at Christmas time, the Christmas story, the fact that God himself wrapped himself in flesh and came to live among his people. This, this candle, the joy candle, is significant part of our story as, as a people of God. We are people who have joy. Right. And Christmas is a regular time. Everything else that happens in the world around us can often make us think that we don't have anything to take joy in, to be joyful of. But the birth of Jesus in and of itself is 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 joyful news. Right. The shepherds, when they when they were in the fields upon Jesus's birth, when he was born, the angel appeared in the sky and said, behold, we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Right. The birth of Jesus means joy is possible for all people. So the shepherd's candle represents joy. The fourth candle, the pink candle, is the angel's candle. We just lit that one today. The angel's candle. And the angel's candle represents, oftentimes represents peace. We know that when the angels appeared to the shepherds in that night, they, they proclaimed good news of great joy. And they said these words, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The birth of Jesus means the possibility of peace. Now, I don't know about you, but when you survey our world today, or really any day throughout history, what you will see, what you will discover quickly is that we are a people who are in desperate need of peace. We need peace. And the wonderful news about the birth of Jesus Christ is that it, when it comes, when it is proclaimed to the shepherds that night, it is, it is proclaimed that peace for them is now a possibility. It's a possibility. So the pink candle is a candle of peace. Now, like I said before, this is something we all need. If you just survey the story of the Bible, all the way from the very beginning pages in Genesis chapter three, when we see that God created Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden. And shortly after they were in this garden of Eden, this idyllic land, things started to go awry. Things started to go wrong, right? Sin crept in. Suddenly they sacrificed God for their own desire and their own will in their own way. They rejected God and wanted to live life on their own, according to their own desires, according to their own ideas. They abandoned and rejected God. And as a result, there was consequences for this sin, right? But at the same time that they were kicked out of the garden and consequences came, there was also a promise that came with those consequences. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, we see that the promise that came that one day while there would be consequences for this sin, while, while peace that they had with God would be fractured, peace that they would have with each other was going to be fractured. There was going to be pain and suffering, that their life would not just be idyllic like it was in the garden, but there would be challenge ahead of them. There was also the promise of peace that one day there would come from the woman, someone who would crush the head of the serpent, right? 
that one day things would be made, would be put back as they ought to be. As the story progresses throughout scripture, God establishes a covenant with his people. And Abraham, the Abraham covenant we see in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, where, where God calls Abraham to himself and he, he makes a promise with Abraham that, that what, he's, what he promised back in Genesis three, he's going to fulfill. And ultimately he says, Abraham, I'm gonna fulfill it through you. Through you, Abraham, I'm gonna create for me a people. I'm gonna put you in a land. I'm gonna make you a people. And through you and, and this people, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth. He establishes as the story goes on, he continues to establish one covenant after another. And all of these covenants, whether it's the, the one with Noah, or the one with, sorry, the one with Moses, the one with David, they would, they would reveal and expand on all of these covenants, the covenants that he established with, with Abraham. The promises that God had as the story unfolds throughout the Bible. We see that, that all of these promises find their fulfillment ultimately in Jesus Christ himself. That the whole story of the Bible is a story of God rescuing and redeeming a people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus himself. It is one story. And as we sit here this morning, sort of on the other side of those events surrounding Jesus, we look back at the story, we insert ourselves into it, and we see that, that all of this is, is God's mission. His mission to bring a people to himself, to rescue a people through Jesus Christ. And as a result, be glorified throughout all of earth. It's one story. The promise of peace for the people of God. That's why Christmas, that's why Advent, that's why this story of Jesus and the shepherds and the angels and, and Mary and Joseph is one that we come back to again and again and again. Because for us, it is the story. It is the story. So this morning, as we look at these verses in Isaiah chapter nine, verses six through seven, it's important that we place them where they ought to be in the center of the story of God's redeeming work for humanity. As we look at these verses, we're gonna zoom in on Jesus specifically. Now remember, these words were written some 700 years before Jesus was actually born. Some 700 years before Jesus was born. They were written to a people who did not, were not able to, 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 to come up with names like Mary and Joseph and Jesus. They didn't know all those specifics, right? But they were written to a people who understood that what they shared is something that we share as well, a need for hope and peace in a broken and fallen world. Now, the enemies of their day are a little different than the enemies of our day, right? The, the sources of pain and frustration and concern and confusion for them are a little different than they are for us. For them, when these words were written, they would have been primarily thinking like their source of, of pain, the biggest threat for them would have been the Assyrians in these days when this was written. The, the pending sort of impending doom of the Assyrian army coming in and, and conquering them as a people, destroying them as a nation, maybe thwarting God's plan for them. Could God still be faithful if this, do, if this terrible army is knocking on the door of our city? So when these words are written, they're received in the same way as they are for us this morning. 
Because we too can look around and survey our world and we can see, while it's not the Assyrians that many of us are terrified of, right? It's the uncertainty, quite honestly, of just life in general. It's the brokenness of relationships. We can take hope as we zoom in and focus on the promised Messiah. I wanna point out just three things as we go through these verses. I want, as we zoom in on Christ, I want you to consider three things. The first thing about Jesus specifically, I want you to consider are Jesus's shoulders. I want you to consider with me quickly, Jesus's shoulders. Look at verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Folks, make no mistake about it. Jesus is a political figure. He is. He's not a partisan figure, but he is a political figure. Make no mistake about it. When Jesus comes into the world, he disrupts and confronts the power structures of the world then, and he does so today as well. Eugene Peterson, the famous pastor and prolific author wrote this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. The kingdom of God an altogether political metaphor is basic vocabulary in understanding Christian gospel. Jesus was political, but not in a way that we think of politics today. The nature of his, just consider the nature of his kingdom. So when, when Jesus, when you read through the gospels, you just see so much kingdom language, so much kingdom talk. And here it says that the government itself will rest upon his shoulders. The, the nature of his kingdom is completely upside down from, than from what we would expect or anticipate. God's answer, for example, to everything that's wrong in this world is a child, is a child. The Assyrians, the bullies of the Near East were knocking at the door, threatening to completely disrupt and disorder life as they knew it. And God's answer to this national real threat was a baby, was a baby. How does he defeat the forces of darkness, the arrogant and the abusive? God does so with a child, with a child. How utterly amazing, how completely like God. God is not like the kings of this world. He, he doesn't deliver us from the arrogant and the oppressive and the coercive by being more arrogant, more oppressive, and more coercive. Not God. It's completely upside down. Certainly God is powerful enough to completely destroy all of Israel's enemies. He's powerful enough to do that for us today. Know that in fact, God will use, I mean, we do have certainty that eventually he will judge his people, right? For their sin with these nations. He will use a foreign nation. The, 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 the very thing that these people are looking to for significance, God will eventually bring in and use as a form of judgment for them because of their sins. But as Isaiah gets closer and closer to what is at the very heart of deliverance and redemption for the people of God. As you look through these pages and you search and you see the, 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 the means by which he delivers them, as you see it in the pages of Isaiah, what you find is a childlike face staring back at you. It's completely amazing. 
It's completely amazing. When, when John, in the book of John, Gospel of John, when he writes about Jesus and describes him in John chapter one, verse 14, Jesus describes, John describes Jesus as a man who's full of grace and truth. Folks, this is the kingdom that he has assembled. His kingdom will be established and will look more like righteousness and justice. This is the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates when he comes to us. And the Bible says here in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, that, that his, or sorry, later on, it says that this, uh, in verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That the government that he establishes, the kingdom that Jesus ushers in will be an ever increasing an ever expanding government, an ever increasing kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is a growing kingdom. The word here is one of multiplication. It's that of growing abundance. His kingdom will ever be increasing. Think of it increasing in two terms, in two ways. Certainly we see that Christ comes as the fulfillment of sort of what is the cultural mandate. If you go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1, God says to Adam and Eve, to man, go and be fruitful and multiply. When Jesus comes, what does Jesus do? He brings disciples to himself. And then what does he do with his authority? He sends them out with the great commission. Go and make disciples of the nations, right? That as we sit here this morning, we are disciples who are, while we are content to be, we're, to be content in Christ, we're also longing to see his kingdom spread among us in our community, in our families, in our neighborhoods. We are to be disciples who make disciples. It is the definition of a disciple. You cannot take evangelism away from discipleship or you do not have discipleship. All right. It is a necessary piece of what it means to be a disciple is to be one who reproduces, makes other disciples. So in that sense, his kingdom will be ever increasing. But certainly there's been times in history where it's been it's tried to be thwarted. And what's interesting, if you look back in history and see when persecution and suffering was designed to actually slow the spread, the opposite is what actually happened, that it ignited a passion and a flame that caused the church to grow. So in that sense, because we are a reproducing people, if we're faithfully following Jesus, his kingdom will be ever increasing. But it will also be ever increasing in another sense. If we consider what it means to be united with Christ in eternal glory, that picture of eternal glory will be us worshiping Christ, right? Exalting in him. And the more we do that, the more we will want to do that. What it means to be a disciple is not just to share Jesus, but to grow in the understanding of what it means to love him. That in our being, that his, his, his face, his being becomes increasingly larger and larger and larger. And that's what eternity is for us. Growing in our worship of him. Our passion and love for him will be ever increasing. Folks, on these, on his shoulders. I mean, can you just, just picture that? That's amazing. That here, here, his mother, Mother Mary, holding him, maybe feeding him, and his head resting on this young girl's shoulders as an infant, right? But on his shoulders, on his shoulders, the Bible says, government, the kingdom of God rests. That's an amazing picture. How godlike is that? Here's Mary, who's likely facing rejection from her community, who's young, likely scared. 
Who knows what people are going to say and think? Maybe trembling as she holds this baby. She knows he's special, right? And on his shoulders rests the very kingdom of God. That's amazing. It's amazing. Those are his shoulders. Secondly, and just, you know, if you just parallel that, if you think of Jesus as a politician, just compare him, contrast him to what we have today as politicians. I mean, here's a guy, Jesus, who is completely worth trusting, right? Here's a guy, here's a leader that, that never keeps his cards close to his chest, right? Here's a politician that the more you know about him, the more you like him. How utterly unlike politicians today, right? I mean, Jesus on his shoulders rests the government, an increasing government. Secondly, I want you to consider his name. I mean, this is a birth announcement in many ways, right? It's an unusual birth announcement in this sense. If you picture all the birth announcements today, I mean, they celebrate the birth of a baby, but this birth announcement is, is unique in this sense. It already identifies what he will be like. Birth announcements today, just imagine, hey, we had a baby. It's gonna be brilliant, gorgeous, all right? He's gonna grow up and be the strongest man you've ever seen. Athletic, musical, prodigy, right? You don't see birth, you don't see birth announcements like that. This birth announcement tells us exactly, precisely what this child is going to be like, the very nature and character of Christ himself. And what we see is that his character reveals and reflects ultimately his divine identity. So let's just look at, there's four different words that are used to describe it. I'm gonna read it here in verse six. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, of peace. So we consider first his shoulders. Now I want you to just consider his name. First up, wonderful counselor. For those in need of guidance, nobody here, right? For those in need of guidance, in need of help, Jesus Christ offers us absolutely perfect guidance. Throughout the first book of Isaiah, if you were to just read and throughout Isaiah, you will see what God is constantly confronting is the foolishness of mankind. They're, these people are foolish. Chapter five, verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Chapter 19, 11, the princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. So the, the wisest that humans have to offer in God's eyes, stupid, right? Foolish. Isaiah chapter nine begins in darkness and the picture of humanity is that we are sort of groping to find anchors and, and guideposts along the way, just covered in darkness, uncertain of what's happening and where we're even headed. And into that darkness shines a light. And that light, Christ himself, is a wonderful counselor. The depth of wisdom of this coming one is, is something that you would wonder at. It's amazing. It's precisely the wisdom that we desperately need in a world filled with foolishness, bombarded daily with constant information all around us. But who can you trust? You think of, of just our political world and what we walked through this past year. Can we trust these people? 
right? Think of COVID-19 and the, the information that comes at us day after day after day. Do this. Don't do that. Wear this. Don't wear that. Who do we trust, right? We are filled. We are surrounded by people and we don't know who to trust. In Christ, we have what's called a wonderful counselor, a wonderful guide who can take our hand in the darkness and is for us a light that shows us directly where to go. So we don't have to rely on our own education or our own experience, our own ability to sort of pull it together and make things work. Instead, we get to simply follow the point of our wonderful guide, Jesus Christ, who truly understands us. I mean, this is the point of the incarnation. He came to earth. He, he took on flesh. He lived and suffered and was tempted as you and I are tempted. And so he's not just a counselor who sits off in the distance who says, you know what? I don't fully get it, but follow me anyways. He's a counselor who understands what it's like to be a man. He understands what it's like to be human, to live this experience. And our response is that we simply humble ourselves before him. This is God in the flesh, counseling, leading, guiding, directing us. And our response is to simply follow. I mean, let's, if he's a wonderful counselor, guys, let's follow him, right? Let's not rely on ourselves. Secondly, the name that's given to him, not just is he a wonderful counselor, he's also a mighty God. For those who are weak and in need of strength, nobody here, right? Wrong. Every one of us, weak, broken in our sin. Jesus Christ for us is mighty God. He offers us his power. The idea here is that of a hero, a sort of a, a superhero. Only this hero has no kryptonite, right? This hero has no weakness. Rather, this hero is all powerful, powerful enough to absorb all the evil that the world has to throw at him until there's none left. He can absorb it, conquer it, defeat it, crushes the head of the serpent. I mean, this hero is precisely the hero that we need. Think about the way he entered the world, completely unexpected. A strong hero comes to us in the form of a child. He possesses a power unlike anything that this world has ever seen before, a power that captivates and thrills the crowds. As he lives his life, people are in awe and wonder of the words that he says and the deeds that he does. His power is on display for all to see, undeniable. The way he ultimately would defeat the power of this world speaks for itself. Completely surprising. Didn't see that coming, right? He stretches out his arms and rather than just weighing lace to everybody around him, he spreads his arms on a cross and dies. And in the most surprising way, defeats the evil forces of power in this world that plague us every single day. His power overcomes his enemies. That's the power that we ought to get behind. He's a powerful God, a mighty God. Thirdly, he's an everlasting father. He's for us the counselor who, who gives wisdom. He's the, the, the God who provides power. But here, in the third one, he's, he's an everlasting father. Of maybe the four names, this is the one that's maybe the most confusing. Jesus Christ, everlasting father. How does that make sense? For us, Jesus, I mean, for, for, 
back in the day, this would have been, it would have been commonplace for kings to refer to themselves as a father. And for those who they maybe take captive as their children or who they rule over as their children. And so, so what's happening here is Isaiah is positioning and, and contrasting Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, in contrast with the current kings of the day. He's an everlasting father, right? I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie. If you haven't seen it, don't watch it, okay? It's called Hatchy. Anybody seen it? It's about a dog and a man, okay? Uh, I'm gonna try to tell you quickly, uh, spoiler alert, okay? It's on Netflix. We watched it a couple years ago, put it on. Richard Greer's in it. And it's, a, it's this, I think it's a true story maybe based on a, a dog that this guy discovered and found, brought home, trained, just grew just this wonderful relationship with, right? And then as the story goes and spoiler alert, the guy dies, okay? And what makes this, again, don't watch it. It's terrible. You'll be, you'll be just be crying the whole time, okay? Um, the guy dies and what he does like before he dies is he, he trains the dog that he goes to work at the train station, right? And so he goes to the work and the dog like, ch you know, chases him after the train station, kind of says goodbye to him. And then he comes home and the dog meets him at the train station, right? It's, oh, it's so cute and endearing. The dog followed me and now he's here to welcome me home. And, and every day he goes to work, the dog does the exact same thing, right? Sees him off and welcomes him back. But one day, guess what? He doesn't come back, right? The man dies. So, so the dog, and this is what's so heartbreaking about the movie, just continues to go expecting to see his, his master, his, his father, if you will. But his father doesn't come back, right? Now, he's a good dad. He loved him. He cared for him. But, but he's a limited dad, right? right? He's limited by his life, right? And death. Can't come back. He dies, okay? The picture of God for us is that of Jesus for us is an everlasting father. A, a, a father who loves us, who's good to us, who extends himself freely to us, and a father who never abandons us, but is everlasting, constantly accessible, constantly there. This is the picture that we have in Christ, right? You, you guys have probably likely all seen the, you know, sort of the teenagers who turn their nose up at their parents and, nah, get away from me, you're, you're not cool anymore, I don't, I don't want anything to do with you, right? Right, and, and you know, the parents sitting there, what, what, what's going on? You've seen this, I'm sure, at a mall or a game or whatever, right? The picture of us as children and, and God as a father is, is one who will always be there, right? And, and for us, the response is that we, we want his presence, right? We hold his hand. We look to him for guidance. We want a relationship that is meaningful, right? It's not temporary, but is everlasting. And that's what God offers us. Jesus Christ is the everlasting father. He will not leave you or forsake you. He gives sacrificially for you unending love that we get to enjoy. Fourthly, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. This is sort of the climactic of the four. And it, it makes sense that it would come at the very end. He's a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father and Prince of Peace. What kind of king do we have in Jesus? We have the kind of king who restores peace, the very peace that we need. He, he comes to establish peace. He doesn't come by exerting himself over us, squashing the opposition. Rather, he comes and extends to us peace. He, he inserts himself into the confusion, into the chaos of your world. And what does he promise? Peace. He offers peace for you. 
the possibility of reconciliation. Reconciliation, first and foremost, between us and God. That relationship that was fractured back in Genesis chapter three, Jesus offers to heal it, right? Our greatest, most significant relationship, the greatest place of brokenness in our life is the, is the brokenness that our sin has caused between us and a loving father, right? Jesus comes to us and he offers the possibility of restoring the relationship that is most significant in our life. He offers us peace. And not just do we have that vertical peace in Jesus, but he also offers us peace among brothers and sisters, right? Goodwill among men and women, right? He, he gives us, he sets up an institution here on his earth, in this world, where he allows this peace and designs it so that this peace would reign. I mean, if you think of what the gospel does is it, it tears down, according to Ephesians chapter two, it tears down the walls that divide us and it brings us together. God says and creates one new man, the church of people who are to reflect the very peace that Christ establishes, right? And that peace characterizes us, characterizes us as his people. It's a piece of vertical peace. It's also a horizontal peace across humanity. He offers us his peace. I mean, listen to that proclamation from the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. The point is this, God's offer of peace goes out to all of his chosen people. And those who receive Christ and trust him as savior and as Messiah and as the hope of their life will experience the peace he brings. You get a glimpse of what that looks like in Luke chapter 10, verses five and six. Jesus says to his disciples, whatever house you enter, first say this, peace be to this house. And if son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. God's peace in Christ is offered to the entire world. But only the sons of peace, the daughters of peace, are those who receive it. How do you know if you're a son, if you're, if you're one with whom he is pleased? Simple. You receive the peace he's offered. You receive the peace he's offered. You, you welcome the great peacemaker. Jesus himself. So that's his name. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Lastly, I want us to just consider his heart. Look at his heart. Now these, this line, the last line in this section is maybe as, as, as famous as chapter six is, or sorry, verse six in chapter nine is, oftentimes verse seven gets forgotten. But the very last line, just look at the last line. It's one that struck me specifically this week. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did you know that our God, the God of the Bible is a zealous God? He's a zealous God. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean? Think of it going in two directions. The first, I think the one that's maybe the most, maybe most of us think about most immediately is that he's zealous for his people, right? 
He's zealous for his people. When God gives people the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the second commandment, God declares that they should, they should have no other gods before them, right? Before him. The people are not to give themselves to other gods. He wants these people to be exclusively his people, right? The whole book of Isaiah is God judging them because they're not listening to him. They're giving themselves away to idolatry. They, they see the nations that exist out there and they want to be like those nations, right? God is zealous for them. It says this in Exodus 20, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. It's a word that could be interpreted the same way. Zealous, jealous. He's jealous for these people. But there's another aspect to his zeal. Israel belongs to him and no one else. His people are not to chase after false gods because they are the Lord's chosen. They are not to give themselves to the worship of man-made images or materials because they worship the one true God. The Lord wants them for himself. He's jealous. He, he, the, if you were to look at it, sort of Arabic cognates, it would say that he is, this word zealous is to become intensely red, right? It's, it's this idea of color and passion rushing into one's face from a place that's deep within. In Proverbs 6, 34, it's used to describe a husband's jealousy for the love of his wife. In Ecclesiastes 4, 4, it's, it's used to describe the envy that drives all of human ambition. The Song of Solomon, the passion is, is in love of the hearts that would exist between a, a bride and a groom on a wedding day. It's, it's the driving force. God's zeal is the driving force behind all of salvation. It's God's zeal, the zeal of God. It says in Ezekiel, and this is key, not just is he zealous for us, but first and foremost, God is zealous for himself, for his glory. Listen to Ezekiel. Therefore says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you come. God's passion for the glory of his son is what makes this happen. God's zeal for his name is what produces our salvation. It's where our peace comes from. So the God of the Bible is a God who is acting out in history, zealous to see the glory of his name proclaimed throughout all of the nations. And the benefit, the result of that is our peace. It's our salvation. As God triumphs over creation, he doesn't leave us in the dust. As God exalts his name over the world, and establishes his kingdom and government on his shoulders, lifts himself up. He doesn't just give us the crumbs that fall from the table. He invites us to be co-heirs with the kingdom he's establishing. His glory is your peace. When he's exalted, it's your peace. It's for your joy. I mean, just even think of a, like a, just a natural implication is Sunday morning worship. We come with the primary purpose. Why? To worship. That's why it's called Sunday morning worship, right? It was an easy one. That's 
why we come here. It's why we gather together. He commands it. He says, do not neglect it. As God's people, we are worshiping people. We come together and we worship. It's the primary purpose. But as you read through the New Testament, you see that there's another purpose that's right there waiting in its wings. It's that while we give ourselves in worship, even while we sing songs, you know what happens? We encourage and edify one another. Right? The primary thing that we exist for is God's glory. And as we give ourselves to it, there is a blessing so vertical, right? There is a blessing that goes horizontal to us. I mean, this is why, this is what God is doing in this book, right? He has created a story that we are characters in. He is the hero. He is getting glory for himself. And his glory means for us our peace. It's amazing. It's amazing. Church, I'm going to close in prayer. And I'm going to invite, actually, yeah, I'm going to pray. And then uh, Wayne is going to come up and he's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. So would you bow your heads real quick? Father God, Lord, we thank you. Um, just that you are such a creative God. I mean, none of us would have written a story like this. None of us. Lord, but that you have designed this world in such a, in such a way that you are, as you are glorified, your people are edified. I mean, that is amazing. Father, and I just thank you for the good news of, of, uh, of, of Jesus Christ's birth and what that means for us. Lord, it provides for us hope as we, as we live in this sort of in-between of his first coming and his second coming, Lord, and things are still not all the way they ought to be. Lord, you still give us hope that one day, one day you will make things exactly how they ought to be and that we will enjoy you as we were designed to enjoy you, enjoy you fully. Lord, I pray that in the meantime that you would help us to be good stewards of this gift that you've given us. Lord, that we would give our lives towards making much of you in every, every place that we find ourselves. Lord, that we would direct our gaze and others in your direction. Lord, and as a result, that you would encourage and strengthen us, Father, that you would help us to enjoy the peace, supernatural peace that you offer us even in today's chaotic times, even in the midst of broken relationships and failed expectations. Lord, I pray that we would taste and see or that you are good and we would give our lives to you, Lord. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.